And I hope now that our minds and hearts are being put in the right places. We're about to study God's Word. I'm going to ask for you to pray with me now. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your Word that has come to us through your Son, that has come through the apostles and prophets, that this morning that we can study the Apostle John and what has been revealed to him uh, to those seven churches of Asia. And Father, that we will make great, gain great things from what we hear from Christ this morning, that we will be encouraged, that we'll be given endurance, and if we need to, that we will repent and, and turn toward you. Uh, Father, we ask that you give us strength in the world that comes before us. Uh, Father, we ask that you open doors. We ask for those open doors to share the gospel and the truth with our friends and neighbors and co-workers and family, those who are around us. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we'll be getting into Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And I guess this, I could add chapter 1 in that section as well. That's what we're reading this week. We're reading Revelation chapter 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 1 through 5. And I, I love the book of Revelation. I remember being 12 years old and opening up to the book of Revelation and barely understanding what I'm reading. But I did get that it was symbolism. And some of the symbols... I could pick out because I knew my Bible growing up in a Christian family. When I read about the Lamb of God coming to the throne and the one sitting on the throne in heaven, I understood that picture. I understood the symbolism there that Christ is the Lamb of God and He's the only one who's able to approach God and to bring about the things that we read about here in the book of Revelation. When I read the book of Revelation, I see it as an encouragement. I'm stirred up by it. I feel good by it. I see a lot of people who read it and they sit, they're kind of afraid of it. Revelation, the apocalypse, and they start getting these, these pictures in here because there are the bowls of wrath in the text, things that are going to come upon the world, a time of tribulation. There's a picture of a man called the beast who persecutes and makes war on Christians and on the saints. But the whole text of Revelation is to encourage us to tell us that despite all these things, Christ is ultimately victorious. We're going to win. Thank God for that. So what you need to do is endure. And I think about those. I love the, the last two chapters of Revelation when you read about the new heaven and new earth and, and Jerusalem and you read about the new Jerusalem there and you see the water flowing from the throne of God and you see the tree of life and you see pictured there in the street of gold there in that place in the new Jerusalem the place where we're going to live eternally. The picture there stirs me up and encourages me. And as I think about that, and I think about the bodily resurrection that is to come, I wonder about how much of that is symbolic and how much of it is very literal. Um, I, I think about the details of it. And as far as the details of there about that place, I'm, I lean personally toward the side that, that it's, a lot of it is very literal. I, I don't see any reservation about there not being a street of gold and they're not being a tree of life that that those are real things so as we think about that we read the book of revelation i hope that this text is an encouragement to you as you look at the ultimate victory you look at what we believe in and what we hope for uh, and maybe um you know if there's something in your life that you feel like i just kind of lost it and i feel a little bit of deadness or that my faith has kind of fallen asleep and i'm I just kind of go into church every week, but I'm not really excited about it. I love Re Revelation for that. 
um, encouragement here in this text. Let's get into Revelation chapter 1 and let's look at the first three verses. I'm taking this from the New King James for a very specific reason. And we're going to look at that in a moment. So the first word in the book of Revelation is not actually the, there's no article there. It's a Greek word, and I wrote it up there, well I've transliterated it, apocalypsis. And apocalypsis means revelation. It's what's been revealed. And so when we look at God's message coming to the apostles and prophets, the word in the Bible, apocalypsis, means to, de- to deliver or it means revelation. And a lot of times when we hear the word apocalypse, we think, oh, end of the world, catastrophe. That's not the meaning of the word. It might be the meaning of the English word apocalypse and how people use it today. But in the Bible, it is God's revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's read that here. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're studying. Which God gave him to show his servants. God gave this to Christ to show to his servants. That's us. Things which must shortly come to pass. And so a lot of people think about Revelation, they're thinking about end of time. No, these are things that were starting then. A lot of this takes place in the first century. And it has further application because what happens in the Revelation in the first century and in that time is going to repeat itself, something similar to it, uh, in, the, in the end. Because when you read Revelation, you go into, there's a lot there in chapters 13, Um, through 16 and 17, and you see Satan at work. He's deceiving the nations, and he has one man who is persecuting the church, this man who's at war against saints. And that's going to take place. Christ is going to end that. Then there's going to be a long period, a relative period of peace called the millennium, which is in Revelation chapter 20. And after that, in Revelation chapter 27 through, through 10, it says again, Satan will rise up. He's going to deceive the nations again. So what we're reading is going to repeat itself in a similar fashion at the end time. And we're reading about the victory of Christ, God's providence and how he works things out. And I, I love this. Now, let's look at the next, next sentence here. I think this is verse 2. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. And so when we read a lot of times in Scripture, for instance, the law of Moses is delivered by angels. Angels are a part of delivery of revelation. One thing I want to point out here, I know I'm pausing a lot in this section, but look at this word signify. This is why I use the New King James, because when you read the ESV in the New American Standard, it says made known or shown it to be known. But this word is significant here, this Greek word, because it only appears like six or seven times in the New Testament, and is usually interpreting a symbol, some kind of parable or symbolic language. And you don't really get that when you read those other translations. But here in New King James, he's saying this revelation is symbolic. It is signified. And so we're reading a symbolic revelation and for many reasons. Uh, it, it is for our understanding. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, he spoke in parables? Why? He said that the people who weren't really listening to him would not understand his revelation. But those who did listen to him and were following him would understand it. So this is a text that we can understand. So he bore witness to the word of God. There's Christ. There's the truth. And to the testimony of Jesus Christ. There's some parallelism there. Bearing witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ are linked together and it's the same. He says, to all things that he saw. So John, God's servant, saw these things in a vision. 
It says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And I like how ESV says, those who read it aloud. And I think it's a good thing. A lot of times we kind of read silently to ourselves. It's good to read the Bible aloud to yourself. In fact, I did all my reading this week in that way. Uh, I read out Revelation aloud to understand it a little bit deeper and, and to look at these details. So blessed is he who reads. We are blessed this morning by reading these things, these words of this prophecy. And he says, and we're blessed those who keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. These things are about to take place. When? Well, this is John in the first century. He's on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there. He's being persecuted for his faith. And he is sending this message out to seven churches. And as we begin to read Revelations to the seven churches of Asia, Patmos is off the coast of what would be the nation of Asia Minor in the first century. Uh, today, um, this is the Anatolia. It would be it would be whereas Turkey is on their west coast there. And you can look up there and, and these, these seven cities form a trade route right there in Asia Minor. So the message will be spread around to them. And among them are cities that we should be familiar with. For instance, the book of Ephesians is written to Ephesus and that is the first church. In fact, that's what Cohen read for us this morning was an epistle to Ephesus. And I guess you can make the case that's the second Ephesians right there. Um, we could go a little bit further with that because Peter wrote to an area that also included Ephesus and a lot of these, these same places. So is an apocalypse coming on the world? Well, these things are written to encourage us. And if I look at it and I see what happened in the first century and what has been fulfilled, what John says in the book of Revelation, and I'm looking for it to come about today, I'm looking for another worldwide persecution could that be coming? Could there be another worldwide persecution coming upon Christians? In the 20th century, and, and I've heard this, since the first century and in the 20th century, more Christians died in the 20th century for their faith than any other century since the first. And so those who, who believe, is, is that true? Is this world becoming more hostile? Is Satan deceiving the nations is there going to be another worldwide persecution? Is Christ about to come back soon? Those are big questions. But I think at certain points in time in history, no matter when you lived, if you lived in the, you know, uh, different periods in the past, you might be thinking, you know, if I was living during the beginning of World War II, I might be thinking, all right, here's Hitler, here's the world, the world is in chaos, certainly Christ is going to come back soon. Those things might come to mind. So at one side, I want to be very cautious about saying, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that is what is happening right now in this world and why it's becoming more hostile. But I would take it as an encouragement that I need to be sharing my faith and living as Christians and spreading the truth to others and hopefully getting us ready. Because either way, we've got to face our creator in the day of judgment. What would Jesus say to the churches of Christ today? What would he say? Because when you read... In Revelation 2 and 3, you have Jesus giving Revelation messages to these churches, churches of Christ in the first century, and about what's going on in these churches, things that need to change. And so when I read this, it's definitely a message for us today is, what is Jesus saying to them and what is he saying to us? I can't help it when I read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and I look at those seven churches and what Jesus has to say to each one of them, and to think, which one of them 
best resembles the Thomasville Church of Christ. And then I think about other congregations I've been a part of growing up. I grew up at the Vaughn Park Church in Montgomery and at the Delreda congregation. I wonder about them. I think about my congregation was about a part of in Jacksonville. Where would they fall in? And I think those are serious questions, and I hope that we will be very honest of where we fall in. Now, while Jesus talks to some of these churches and he says there's some things wrong with them, he also says to them there are a few among you that are still faithful. Even in the church of Laodicea and in Sardis, the ones where he really doesn't give much more of an encouragement. So think about that. Think about that. All right, let's take a look here at these seven churches. I could take my time this morning and read chapters 2 and 3, but I'm going to let you do that, a part of your reading, and draw that out now. Um, but I want you to look at this. So five out of the seven churches in Asia, you know what Jesus says to him? His main message is, you're doing something wrong and you need to repent. You think about that? Do you think about the churches of Christ and that Christ's message is to about 71% of them? Repent. Change. About 29% are either going through persecution or they've endured so much that God keeps them from persecution. Well, we're going to read about those churches. We look at the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia there and how they are kept, um, well, Philadelphia is a kept away from the coming persecution because they have already endured so much for God's word. Look at what goes on in these churches. So the first one here, and I think if you're going to be one of these churches that Jesus is saying, repent, I want to be like the church at Ephesus. But that's not really a good thing. Because look at it right here. The church at Ephesus, Jesus says to them, and he pleads with them, he says, yes, you stand against evil. Yes, you test those who claim to be apostles, but they're really not. But I have something against you. You left your first love. You left your first love. And then he explains there, you weren't doing the works that you once did in the beginning. You know, what do churches do in the beginning when they're formed? What kind of works are they? Maybe they're more benevolent. Maybe they're looking out, doing greater good. Maybe they're more evangelistic. Well, this church will not put up with false doctrine. They stand against it. But at the same time, where are they on those first works, those acts of love? The acts of benevolence and, and giving and, and, and sharing the truth with others. And if this is the best case scenario of a church being called to repent, I think it's very striking and very convicting. So if we are asking ourselves this morning, if we were to say that this congregation here is anything like these churches that we're looking at that are being called to repent, I think this is the one that would be most likely. So think about that. Does that resemble me? What can I do as a member of this congregation to make sure that we don't fall into that and that if we need to repent, we will. Repenting is a good thing. We see in the scriptures the angels rejoicing over those who repent. Let's look at some of the other churches here. We have Pergamum. At Pergamum, the church held Jesus' name, but they justified idolatry and fornication. This would be like a church today saying, you know what, all the other religions are okay. If you worship Allah... Or if you worship another god, or if you worship multiple gods, that's okay. Everybody's going to be fine. Do we hear anything like that today? We hear people talking like that. And if you're in a sexual, immoral relationship, that's all right. We're not going to judge you. You, kinda, you hear that today. 
And the church at Pergamum, that's their problem. They held up Jesus' name, but they were okay with the worship of, of idols and false gods and sexual morality. Look here, here's a similar one. In Thyatira, Jesus commended the church for their love, their faith, their service, endurance. Well, that's great. So we see some good in the congregation, but they tolerated. Notice the word tolerated here. They tolerated somebody, this woman in the church that's described there, she's called Jezebel, who is leading others away, telling them it's okay that you worship other things, other gods, and that you give in to sexual immorality. That's fornication, sex outside of marriage. You think about that. Is that going on in churches today? Or people, you know, I think about congregations where, um, that I've heard of, where people are in immoral relationships, where a man has divorced his wife, he had no biblical reason, has gone off and married another woman, and he's living in adultery, as Jesus tells them not to do. I think about churches who, who tell people and don't say anything to these individuals, to be more specific, who are sitting in the congregation and they're living together, but they're not married. They just let it go. And then we, we could take that to a further extent, but I think those are two more practical examples that we're more likely to see among our, our congregations. Number four, he, Christ addresses the church at Sardis, calling them to repent, and he says this, and I, I hate this description. I never want to be described as this kind of Christian or being in this kind of church. You look like you're alive, but you're dead. You look like you're alive, but you're dead. Why? Because they forgot the truth they received. It's the truth that keeps us alive, that keeps us activated, that keeps us focused. Can you imagine being a part of that? Now, there are some in this church who haven't soiled their garments and who haven't sinned against and remain faithful to Christ. That's the only good thing about them. And imagine being a part of a congregation like that. would be very, very tough. We certainly don't want to be like that. Then the last one is Laodicea. Easy to remember Laodicea. I see the L. I think of the other word that's associated with them. It starts with L. Lukewarm. And in Laodicea, they lived about, that town was about, I think, three to five miles from another city called Hierapolis. Hierapolis had warm water. People in Laodicea didn't have those warm springs, and it was kind of irritating to them. I want warm, I want warm water. You know, imagine living without your hot water heater or something like that. But anyways, Jesus uses that illustration of them and their water situation there, and he says, you're neither hot nor cold, you're just lukewarm. You don't have a spring for either one. You're just lukewarm. And when it comes to, you know, eating or drinking, you know, if you want something cold, I don't want lukewarm Coke. You ever had Coca-Cola that's lukewarm? It's been sitting out and the fizz is out of it. No, I'd rather spit that out. What I do with that kind of Coke is I pour it out in the sink. I don't want any part of that. And, and I don't want a soup that's just been sitting there for an hour or so collecting dust. So... I don't want that either. And so Jesus says to this church, you're lukewarm in your works. And they thought, we don't need anything. We're so rich, we're prosperous. And, and Laodicea was also known for their medicinal um, medicines that they made and produced. Here they are, they're just lukewarm. Neither hot nor cold. And Jesus says, at least be one or the other. So my question this morning is we look at these churches 
especially the ones that Jesus is calling to repent, are we comparable to them? Are we like them? Are there things that we need to work on? And that means that everyone in here should be thinking right now, okay, I think this is where our weakness is in this congregation. I'm going to be an example and make a change in my life and begin working on this. I'm going to be a better example to those around us. I've seen in churches sometimes there are men who want to be leaders in the church, and then there are men who are leaders. And the ones that are leaders are the ones that set an example. Men and women, for that matter. They set the example. You can have men who want to be elders or deacons or minister, and people won't follow them. They will follow those who lead by example. So think about that. I hope that as we contemplate this. I love this scripture right here. It's kind of the center of the sermon this morning. Revelation 3 and verse 19, Jesus says this. He says, those whom I love. So as we read these things, this is not a matter of Jesus saying, I hate you. Jesus is saying, I love you. Repent. I love you. Come back to me. Jesus declared, for those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Like any good father, like you read about in Hebrews chapter 12, a good father disciplines his children. He says, so be zealous and repent. I want you to be zealous. I want you to be passionate. I want you to be stirred up. And when you have that zeal, then you can repent. Then you can break off that burden you've been carrying of sin and worry and anxiety of the things that stress you. The things that have been pulling you. One day, that, those, that, that cord that is pulling you, it will break. You don't have to give in to sin and to the things in this world. You don't have to tolerate evil. All you need to do is repent. I was thinking this morning, the way our society is, people often think about, well, I want to stay at the head of the curve of social progress and whatever society is now saying is morally right. And so people will jump onto that. And others are saying, no, we need to conserve traditional values. You know what our country needs? It doesn't need any one of those. It's always been blessed and we have been. At least it seems like we're coming to this point where we are giving up on the one thing that we have had the ability to do in America and the United States, and that is to repent. Not to progress into sin or to stay back into sin, but is to repent. It is to change. That's the word I want to hear today. I want to hear it among, especially among the churches. In our country, it is the appeal on the words of Christ to repent. I want you to look at this too. Look at the enduring churches. So when I, I was having Rachel look over my sermon, I said, which one of these do you think that we, as Thomasville, fit into? And she didn't pick one of the ones that needed to repent. And so um, I'm kind of putting her on the spot. I'm sorry to do that. But what she said here, she thinks, I, th I think we're more like the church at Philadelphia. I think the, the Thomasville congregation has been through a lot, has endured a lot, and has stood up for God's word, and has stood by the name of Christ, and with patient endurance have come through. And I can definitely see that. And Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, because of who you are, and because you stood up for what is right, you're not going to deal with this coming persecution, this tribulation that's coming on the world. I'm going to keep you from it. 
However, the other church here that's mentioned where Jesus does not call them to repent, doesn't say there's anything wrong with them, is the church at Smyrna. He says, you stay faithful. You endure because you're going to go through a tribulation. You're going to go through a period of time, and the, and the description there is 10 days. Whether that's literal or not, I don't know. But he says to that church in Smyrna, you're going to go through hard times. You're going to be put into prison. People are going to slander you and put you down. But I want you to endure and come through it. And that message comes out in the book of Revelation. As Christ is telling the churches that are doing right, that you keep doing what is right. You endure. And a part of that is holding to God's Word. Look at this, these, these passages here. I want to show you specifically two from Revelation 13 and 14. The purpose of the book of Revelation is this. It is a call for us who are faithful to endure, and it is a call for those who have gone astray to repent. So John warned, he warned of this beast, this man who's coming. He's going to blaspheme against God. He's going to make war on the saints, on Christians. And in Revelation 13 and verse 10, the last line there, he says, Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints that we endure. Because, brethren, I don't know what's happening. I know our country is going in a direction, a very immoral direction, where Christians are looked down upon as stupid and evil. And the Bible tells us, Christ is telling us, that you endure and you hold to your faith. And that this text is a call to do that. Another thing I see here is John warns against hell. And he says those who worship the beast, who join with him, and go along with whatever the, the false prophet says. So there's this media that is supporting this man and saying, Worship him, adore him. He's going to give you what you want, but he's actually making war on Christians. And so John gets this revelation, and in, in, in the revelation he's saying about this one that they're going to hell, that they're going to suffer day and night, that the fire of their torment is going to go up eternally. And his point is Revelation 14 and verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And one thing we can make sure that we're doing as Christians and in the church is that we're keeping the faith. We're keeping the commandments of God. We're ready to endure whatever comes before us. Whether there's, whether there's false teachers, which we've read about that were among these churches, whether there's persecution that is coming, that we'd be able to stand. So from the beginning of Revelation, this book is a call for endurance. Look, listen to Revelation 1 and verse 9. There's a lot here in the very beginning of Revelation. And it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. And you start reading about the tribulation. There's a tribulation, catastrophic events that are going to come upon the world in the first century. And it's not just the church here. Everybody's going through this event. And then he says, not only am I a partner with you in that, I'm a partner with you because evidently that tribulation had already begun. I'm a partner with you in the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom has already begun. We're a part of that kingdom right now. We're part of the kingdom of Christ. And our king is Jesus. And we follow him. And then he says, and a part of the patient endurance. You see it again. The endurance. Patient endurance. That are in Jesus. It was on the island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is enduring this. He's going through the tribulation. He's going through. He's knowing what it's like to endure. He knows that he's a part of something greater, a part of the kingdom. And he takes courage in that, and he gives that encouragement to others. I find it 
Fascinating. It's sometimes those passages in the Bible when, you, when Paul's writing those prison epistles, or here John is in exile, and he's encouraging others. You ever visited somebody in the hospital, and you go in to encourage them, but they encourage you more? I've had that happen a number of times. Optimistic. Yes, I'm going through something hard. And they begin asking about you. How's the, how are things going with you? And I think that's a, it's a, and a very encouraging thing. And here you have John going through this, this horrible event of being exiled, and yet he's encouraging these churches, all the churches. And he warns about things that are coming. Another thing we can ask ourselves as we're thinking about standing strong and enduring, are blasphemies and persecutions coming upon the saints again? One thing I know is the Bible says if you seek to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. Somebody's going to slander you, they're going to speak against you, and that is the least of that we have to be concerned about. It could be much worse. And again, as I mentioned in the very beginning, Revelation 20 right there that's on the screen says that the things that happened in the first century, and the reason I know that these things happened in the first century, and the key, I believe, in understanding Revelation and figuring it out is Revelation chapter 17, 9 through 11. Revelation chapter 17, 9 through 11. I'm not going to pull that up today. We'll probably get to it on another day. But if you, have a, you struggle in understanding Revelation, go read Revelation 17, 9 through 11. Once you study that, maybe read a commentator or two on it and begin to understand that passage, the rest of the book will make sense in its historical context and what it means for us today. And my point in that is that, yes, there is another persecution coming at the end, and Christ is going to defeat. He's going to overcome those who are causing it. And that's going to come, and it's going to conclude with the day of judgment. I encourage you this morning, as we look at this, we look at the endurance that, that we need to have. Christians must continue to endure persecutions. We're going to have to endure false teachers. We're going to have to endure various temptations and things pulling at us. We're going to have to endure unfaithful brethren, churches that appear to be alive but are dead. We're going to have to go through this, but what we can do is keep to God's commandments and remain faithful because Christ is victorious in the end, and we have a hope of eternal life, of being part in that paradise to come. As we finish this morning, I want you to look at what, again, Jesus is saying. Number one, he's saying to the churches, especially those who are in sin, repent. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means to change your mind so that you change your heart and you turn away from sin. And that's the way that it's used here in Revelation. It's not merely changing the mind, just simply that, but that you're turning against evil and sin in the world. When I see people today saying, well, I don't believe the Bible or I don't believe this, it's often because their behavior has already changed. They've already compromised and accepted something else as moral against what God has said is moral. They've come up with their own standard, whatever their friends say, whatever society is telling them, and they rebel against God. Now, repentance means I'm going to submit to my Creator and to Jesus Christ, and I'm going to repent in the way that He tells me to, and what He tells me is right and wrong. Secondly, we continue to read this, that we keep enduring. Revelation 2 and verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I hear that scripture all the time. Oftentimes I hear it when, when, when a preacher is talking about 
the plan of salvation. And he says, listen, after you're baptized, what you want to do is be faithful unto death. But why? Because you receive the crown of life. Be given eternal life. Keep your focus right on the hope of eternal life in that heavenly paradise, that heavenly country where we'll live with Christ eternally. And that's how Revelation concludes. Jesus says to the churches, especially these that are sinning, He says, wake up and be strong. That's the character of the church today. He says to them again throughout the text, is to hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the truth and never give it up. This morning, if you need to make changes in your life, I hope that you will. If you need to repent and do that this morning, we want to pray with you and encourage you. If you don't come forward, I hope that you'll find somebody here that you can say, I'm changing my life. Will you pray with me? Will you encourage me? Can we study together? Do that. Make the changes in, in your life that need to be made. And when you do that, it's going to affect everyone around you. They're going to see that. They're going to see your hope. They're going to see your faith. As we finish, I encourage you with uh, Revelation 22 and verse 14. Where Christ says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. You want to live in that eternal city? Revelation says that God has prepared a city for us where we will live for eternity. With that hope and that blessing, that foundation in God this morning, we can repent and we can change our lives. The Bible also says for you to be saved and become a Christian, Jesus says to become a disciple of mine, you need to not only repent, you need to believe and confess your faith and be baptized. And from baptism, you rise up with all your sins washed away. Colossians 2, 12-13. Whatever your needs are this morning, you need prayers and encouragement. Please come now as we sing together.